One of the most famous sermons in American history was preached by Jonathan Edwards. You've probably heard the title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's said that when that sermon was finished that day, there were people literally writhing on the floor, terrified of the picture of God that had been painted for them. Many have said that this has gone on to shape much of what American evangelicalism has become. In the way that we perceive and the way that we portray God. Perhaps one of the most famous parts, one of the most famous passages of that sermon is his example of the spider. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you. And is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. This same approach has been used at so many different times. Evangelism by terrorism. Conversion by coercion. A picture of God that we must be terrified of, and yet we see various places in Scripture where the picture of God is this, that there is a God who has has wrath, there is a God who has this side, there's this God that is the lion, and yet he is at the same time the lamb. And while I hear this character of God and and his hatred of sin, I hear a voice that says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. There's this certain schizophrenic aspect to our theology. I feel the tug of war inside of me. I walk home on a sunny day and there's children playing out in the field and I listen to their voices and I listen to them mixed with the voices and laughter of my children and it sounds like a melody from heaven itself and I imagine how could God ever let one of these creatures be judged and end in a place of hell. I had a conversation a little while back with an artist in Minneapolis. He was an author, and I was listening to his depiction of his response to the fundamentalist upbringing that he had and his search that he was now in for for God. And he, he, he said in this one line, he said to me in the middle of our conversation, he says, oh, I'm, I'm looking. I'm, I'm just not looking for a fight. And he was so used to a church that was so combative in its approach of how it portrayed the gospel. And it must have felt like him to one giant, constant, unwavering, wagging finger. How many of you haven't come to me and asked questions about, yeah, but what about that person on the other side of the world who's never hurt? Like, how can they even be held accountable? And how can there be a hell for people like that? It's a great question. I'm still wrestling with it. But then I watch the news. And I see story of some radicalized individuals in ISIS and they're throwing human bodies off of a building to their death below for a view that is different than theirs. And now all of a sudden inside of me, I want a hell. 
I want a hell for behavior like that. I want a hell for people like that. I visit a Holocaust museum and I want hell. I want hell for them. Because I hate it and I hate the, the pain that it brings upon people. I hate it every time a young child dies way before its time. A serial pedophile takes advantage of a position over and over and over again, victimizing children that have been entrusted to him. And hell yeah, I want to hell. Don't you? And what do we do with all of this inside of us going back and forth? It's hard to have this depiction of this God of love and this God of wrath all mixed together. And our faith often gets stuck in this strange place. I want to be a universalist. I really want to. But I want, I, I need to know that there's a hell. R.C. Sproul said it like this once, a God of love who has no wrath is no God. He's an idol of our own making as much as if we carved him out of stone. We've been walking all semester through the book of Revelation, and now that we finish the seven letters to the seven churches, we get in this huge middle section of judgment. Two-thirds of all the chapters in the book of Revelation are judgment. Chapters 6 through 20 is judgment. And we're trying to reconcile this Jesus that we saw riding in Jerusalem on a donkey or the one who told Peter to put the sword away and, and healed the very man who had come and was part of a mob to take his life. And now his robe is dipped in blood and he rides on a war charger and, and bowls of wrath are getting poured out and judgment is coming and we see beasts more fanciful than our imaginations could conjure up. And we're trying to figure out what to do with this almost Jekyll and Hyde picture of God that we see in Scripture. And sometimes it's explained away through this almost good cop, bad cop, cosmic battle taking place between the Heavenly Father and His Son. But that doesn't seem right either. I love God's judgment when I hate other people's sins. And in this in-between time, as we wait for it all to come, I came back to this passage again this week from 2 Peter. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. The Lord today is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, if some, as some understand slowness. Instead, He's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. Peter depicts God here as if God himself wishes he was a universalist. Not wanting anyone to perish. How could God ever create something in his own image that he would love so dearly for the purpose of its own destruction? Some theologians, hardened and a little more cynical, have tried to explain that away or justify it at times, saying, well, if God wants to create something and it's, it's just simply going to perish and that's for his own glory, then that's for his glory and we'll deal with it. I have a hard time reconciling that with the God that I see in scriptures or the Jesus that's painted in the Gospels. 
I read a book by Brian Zahn this past week, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And back and forth I go in some giant mental and heart-filled game of ping-pong. In chapters 6 to 20 of Revelation, we see seals and trumpets and bulls and locusts and dragons and heavenly battles and creatures from the abyss. And we suddenly understand where Tolkien got all of his inspiration for his characters. And I wonder, though, if we've been misunderstanding judgment, too, for a long time. The way that our faith is told to us, even from an early age, I think often the character of God can be distorted. I pulled this children's Bible off a shelf last night in our room, our little rack of Bibles from which we grab to tell our kids stories. And I took a quick snapshot of this picture of Genesis chapter 3. It's that famous passage where Adam and Eve are being driven out of the Garden of Eden. And he drove them out. That's even the word that it says there. I grew up with that Sunday school lesson, and I pictured a God who was so angry at them. The picture in my mind looked a lot like this one. Those are the ones I had been fed. And then I go back and I read the passage itself. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them, and in the midst of their nakedness after their invitation of sin into the world, the great hound of heaven begins his pursuit. And the love story of the bridegroom for his bride, his adulterous bride that's going to take place over the next 65 books begins. But already now, not leaving them in their shame and nakedness, he clothes them out of grace. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. A symbol that disappears in Scripture for 65 books, but will come back next week as we look at the closing chapters of the book of Revelation, this bookended image of the tree of life that comes back. But can you see in this text already, not the punitive, but the preventative nature of God's action towards Adam and Eve, restraining and holding back the full weight of sin for what it could be, and what we often call common grace. They don't get the full brunt of it. He clothes them in their nakedness, and he's already reaching out and creating a path of restoration to make the relationship good again. In fact... Adam and Eve are not kicked out of the Garden of Eden because they were terrible people and God was now angry at them. Look at the passage. Adam and Eve are expelled from the Garden of Eden so that they cannot reach, take from the tree of light and life and live forever. The knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, these two trees represent that which is not inherent to the human condition. They eat, they take it, it changes them. And so God now blocks the way to the tree of life saying, I don't want you to become immortalized in this fallen state because we are not gods unto ourselves. We can't inherently live forever. Genesis 2 tells us that God makes us out of the dust of the earth and then he breathes life into us. We take every breath because our God sustains it. We are not gods. 
We are beings entirely dependent on him for everything that we are. And so before God could allow us to reach and take from the tree of life, he blocks it until he can make it right again. And I see this first act of judgment in Scripture is so saturated already with grace. And every little bit of judgment that God seems to allow from there forward is, has embedded within it a form of invitation. As God rattles our cage and invites us back. As God allows the weight of sin that we've invited in to, to, to push on us just enough so that we can turn around and come back to him. That he's holding back his own second coming, waiting in patience for more and more people to come. Because every day that has waited longer, heaven becomes a little more crowded at the end of the day. We don't serve a schizophrenic or confused God. We serve a God who continues to take upon himself the brunt of the weight of sin, holding it back. So that more and more and more of his children can come back to him. So when we come across judgment in the book of Revelation, we come across this middle section. So now we're going to actually try to ch tackle 14 chapters in about six minutes. After spending so much time on the seven letters to the seven churches, and I want to show you what's taking place here. There's this pouring out of the seven seals, right? And then the seven trumpets blow, and then there's the seven bowls, if you've ever kind of read through this middle hard section of the book of Revelation. And when the seals are open, we see judgment through the eyes of the church. When the trumpets are blown, we see judgment through the eyes of the world. And when the bowls are poured out, we see judgment actually through the eyes of God himself. And in this ancient literary device called recapitulation, basically what we're seeing is the same thing happening from three different perspectives. Much like Matthew, Mark, and Luke offer three different perspectives on the earthly ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, so too recapitulation allows us to sort of imagine a spiral staircase that you're going up, and from the next floor you look down and you can see it again. But then you go up and unlike the Synoptic Gospels, which just offer three equivalent vantage points, recapitulation actually escalates as time goes on. So by the time the seventh seal is open, the first trumpet starts, and it's kind of ramping up and ramping up and ramping up. And so it's the same thing, but it's growing and it's escalating. You can see it in the fact that when the seals are open, one quarter of all things are affected. And then when the trumpets are blown, one third of all things. And that fraction happens again and again, in fact, 15 different times. And so there's an increasing allowance. It's like God is coming at them and sort of rattling them a little bit louder and rattling them a little bit louder and trying to get our attention because judgment is really a form of invitation and opportunity to come back to God. And even in the midst of when he allows this to happen in our lives, it's the same thing over and over and over again. C.S. Lewis once said it that, like this, that God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. And you can see that in the unfolding of judgment that takes place in Revelation 6 to 20, which is an explanation of history and theodicy. And why and how God can allow suffering at different times when his greatest goal is just simply to call us back. Now think about on a very personalized level the amount of struggle you feel in life. The things that you're wrestling through right now, could it be that at times God's greatest goal from your life is simply different than yours? That if God knew that a, a certain amount of hardship would draw you closer to him, would he be willing to allow that to happen if his greatest goal of bringing you in was being realized? 
So this spiral staircase is happening as Revelation 6 to 20 unfolds. And then we get to the apex, really, in part of chapter 16. And then what follows is a description of everything else that's going to happen as a result. But we get to this passage, this famous passage on where what so many people's end times theology are all built on. From Revelation 16, 16. It says, then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So much talk about this word. So much lore all built around it. Armageddon. Just really quickly, in case some facts about this so we can see where this book and where this movement is headed. Fact number one. This is actually the only place in the Bible where this word is ever even used. It's supposed to be the culminating moment of all this battle. The seventh bowl is finally poured out. We've gone round and round and round the spiral staircase. Everything has escalated and now it's being poured out. There's no place in the whole Middle East that's actually even named Armageddon. So we're probably talking about something that is much more symbolic like many other things in the book of Revelation. Places and names and numbers. Armageddon is actually a transliteration from two Hebrew words, Har, meaning mountain, and Megiddo, which sounds like the place of troops. Fact number four about Armageddon. There is a place 60 miles north of Jerusalem near Mount Carmel named Megiddo, but it is not actually a mountain. It is a plain, and it's a plain that's mentioned a couple different times in the Old Testament, and in fact, in 2 Kings 23 in particular, where Joash, the king of Judah, is fighting a battle against Necho, Pharaoh of Egypt, and the plains of Megiddo is a, a place with a very famous battles because if you it was the only place through a valley you could enter in from the Mediterranean Sea into the land of Israel. So if you're going to march an army and that's where you would go. And so very many epic and famous battles happen there. So it's a place of reference for Hebrew people. They can pull from their Old Testament story. And as this is escalating now, you sort of see this expectation that all the armies of the world, all these different armies of this world and the next are gathering for one final and cosmic battle of Armageddon. And the final judgment is finally going to be released as the seventh bowl is opened up. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew was called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Remember who's on the island of Patmos recording this vision? The Apostle John, now in his late years, who in his gospel talked about this logos, this word when he starts, the word. This same voice that at the very beginning of time said, let there be light, and there was. The same voice who whispered its breath into man and brought forth life from the ground. The same voice that kept wooing his people back in story after story of the Old Testament. That speaks and delivers them out of slavery. That promises the Messiah. The same voice that keeps coming. Does John remember when he hears this last little line, it is done? Is it reminiscent of when he stood and watched his own Savior die on the cross and heard him breathing in his last voice? It is finished. This is the voice of his old friend. Now not saying it is finished, but it is done. All the armies of this world and the next gather for one cosmic battle. And everybody expects saving Private Ryan to meet Lord of the Rings, to meet the Matrix in one giant epic battle scene. And what ends up happening is the voice just speaks and that's it. It's over. It's done. Our God is so powerful that in the midst of judgment, all he needs is a word, a single breath. In the same way that he created life, in the same way he can end it, it is done. 
And then the next chapters begin to explain the unraveling and the celebration of those who have lived under the torment and the cry of the martyrs who have been killed for their faith and the exploitation the world has experienced under kings and merchants and those who've taken all the valuables of the earth and used them for their own furthering, their own advancement, exploiting people and enslaving them along the way. And heaven starts rejoicing and hymn after hymn starts breaking out as earth and heaven join together. It is done. But maybe there's a lingering question yet. Garen, but what, but what about hell? What about hell itself? And the justice of God in the middle of all of this. You see, I think we've misunderstood judgment for a very long time. And I think our brand of Christianity has misunderstood and misappropriated and mispainted and misdepicted what hell and heaven really are. You see, as heaven is described in the book of Revelation, heaven most certainly is a physical new heaven and a new earth. It is a new creation. But what makes heaven heaven is the fact that our perfect union with God is restored. What makes heaven heaven isn't that it's a place, but that it's a relationship and one that is made perfect. And I like the argument put forward by many theologians that the existence of hell itself is actually one of God's greatest acts of mercy and grace. See, because I think that on Judgment Day, nobody's actually going to be all that surprised. I don't think anybody's going to stand before a loving, righteous, and perfect God and be like, oh my goodness, I just didn't know. I think God is more fair and more just and more righteous and more perfect than all of that. And I think that if anybody didn't want a relationship with Jesus, I'm not even sure you'd really like heaven. I don't think you'd want to be there. If I hated a girl and then you told me I had to marry her, that would just be weird. What if the great hound of heaven who has pursued everybody and wooed us back as the bride... For everyone who said yes, yes, I want that relationship with you. Yes, I want the alleviation of my own sin. Yes, I want to be with you. Then that invitation comes and you receive it. And what if heaven is much more the relationship than the place? It's the perfect restoration of all that is right between us and God. And that those who loved Jesus will absolutely love heaven more than they could ever imagine. As pure love enfolds and envelops us. But sadly... For anybody who's never wanted a relationship with Jesus, I think God has always honored his creation so much that he will even honor that choice to the end. And in that sense, there really is a certain mercy even to the existence of hell. Wayne Jacobson says it like this, and that I think is what hell will be. It's the final box where the wicked can wall themselves away from God. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, I willingly believe that the damned are, in a sense, Successful rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. If hell is the absence of relationship with God, and I can't imagine anything worse than that, then it is what Revelation depicts the second death. 
But for all those who want to write restoration back, in the next chapter, all of a sudden the tree of life comes back. Come back into eternity. Come back into relationship with me. Come back and sit at the wedding supper of the Lamb and enjoy the feasts, the feasts of all of this with me. Each one of us in our own way has to wrestle with the goodness of God in the midst of judgment. I'm trying my best to figure this out. My best answer to the question, what about hell? Is that I guess God is so loving of his own creation that he will honor their choices even to the end. He gave us the opportunity to reject him when we invited sin in, and if we choose until the very end to reject him, he will honor that too because he gave us that. And at the end of the day, I guess that's what love really is. That freedom of invitation and of choice. When I married my bride 18 and a half years ago, I didn't put a gun to her head and say, love me and walk her down an aisle. She willingly came, believe it or not. Because that's what love is. And if I can do that as a faulty, failing human being, this side of glory, our perfect God does this in such perfect ways. He is great and he is glorious. And now I still have questions because my theology doesn't make God have to fit inside of some box of only the things that my mind can comprehend. There's plenty of room for mystery and I have many of them left. But maybe as you keep asking these questions and see this judgment of God, there's actually a comfort in it and a promise that he himself will wipe away every tear. And that all pain and all suffering will end. That all wars will cease. And that we will be back with him in a perfect place. His presence. I'm going to close with you in prayer and I'm going to give you a few minutes actually to sit um, and finish off. We've, the concert choir um, is going to sing Song of Triumph um, over us when I'm done praying. And you'll have that space and I'll come back up and dismiss you when we're done. Can you please join me in prayer? Father, we celebrate the things in you that are revealed and so clear, that comfort us in our distress, that dispel the lies. And Father, we praise you too for the things we can hardly begin to understand, your goodness and your justice, your mercy, your wrath, your hatred of sin and how it's stolen so much from your creation and from your children from our ability to be in right relationship with you and how you have never failed in your pursuit of making that right again. Father, with hearts overwhelmed with gratitude, we give you thanks that you have never stopped being the perfect bridegroom. Despite all of our adulterous ways, not just the ones in others that we hate, but the ones inside of ourselves too, that none of these have been enough to ever push you away. And that we really are, at the end of the day, sinners in the hands of a loving God. For which we give you thanks. Amen.